Welcome to the 36th episode of the Headkick KO podcast. Today we're going to be taking a look at UFC Fight Night, Islam Makhlchev versus Tiago Moises. And after that, we're going to look at some other news inside the UFC. We're going to talk about the alleged stress fractures in Conor McGregor's shin and leg. And after that, we're going to look at some other fights that have been announced and some fights that have been moved. So we're going to talk about that. There aren't too many of those. And we're going to end it off by looking forward to this Saturday's fight card, which is headlined by TJ Dillashaw and Corey Sandhagen, and that should be a good one. So to start off, Islam Makhlchev versus Thiago Moises. This fight was a very impressive showing for Islam Makhlchev if you take out the hype that he has had. If any other prospect in the UFC goes in and puts on the performance that Islam did, they would be receiving a lot of praise. But I think Islam has been critiqued a lot in in this performance because he has been hyped up to be one of the best lightweights in the world. And some people say he can beat any lightweight right now. So I think when we had that type of hype for Islam, I think that his performance fell short of some of the expectations. But with that being said, that doesn't mean that he is not that guy and he can't be a champion because I think he can be a future champion. But I think right now we need to lesser some of the expectations for Islam because we are expecting him to be some sort of unstoppable force like Habib was when that is such an unrealistic comparison and expectation that a lot of fans have set for Islam. And if you look at that fight, he looked very, very good. I mean, I was very impressed with his striking. Obviously, Islam's a great grappler, but the striking from Islam was a lot better in this fight, and it makes me think that he has a much better future in terms of his long-term stay in this division because at lightweight, if you're incompetent on the feet, you're going to struggle just based off the current lightweight landscape. But Islam looked very good on the feet. I think the thing that impressed me most was his ability to back Tiago Moises up against the fence. Um, some of that could have came from Tiago being willing to sit there on the fence. But Islam was able to back him up. And from there, he was able to land strikes. He was doing very well kicking the body. And then he was taking takedown opportunities when they were given to him early. And then later in the fight, in that third round, in that fourth round, he was really enforcing takedowns a lot more. He, was, he wasn't just taking opportunities that were given to him. He was, you know, going for takedowns more actively. And then that led to him having more control time on the ground and eventually finishing this fight. So, well, this wasn't the type of performance that would make you think that Islam is the best lightweight on the world at the moment. This was something that showed a great grappler with a lot of potential, and I think that is what Islam is right now. So, well, he may not have lived, lived up to a lot of the hype that some people may have unfairly, you know, given to Islam, just based off, you know, his relation with Habib and, you know, how he has looked in some of his previous fights. But I think if this were anyone other than Islam, like I said earlier, he would be being praised for this type of performance. But since it's Islam, he's kind of being um, a little bit overly critiqued. And I did do some of that myself here in that short little, um, short little kind of opinion that I gave on the fight myself. 
So with that being said, what is next for Islam Makhlchev? Now, I am actually, let's take it a step back. Let's take it one step back and let's look at what Islam did after the fight in terms of promotion because that has been a topic of discussion around surrounding Islam. Habib said he was a very charismatic guy who wished he promoted himself better. So when we look after this fight, he calls out RDA in his post-fight um, interview in the octagon. And I think that was a very good call out because that is a fight that is realistic that Islam could possibly get. He already got that once. He could get that again now. And it wasn't a fight where you look at that and you go, oh, Islam's trying to pick an easy fight. Like that would be like if he called out Tony Ferguson, which he did later do. If he were to call out Tony Ferguson in his octagon interview, it'd be like, oh, well, you know, he, he Tony's an easy fight for him. That's why he calls out Tony. So the call out of RDA was a very good call out. And I like that name that he threw out there. Now, the problem that I have is he goes backstage and he calls out Tony Ferguson and he calls out Michael Chandler. So now we have a split in the fan base where some fans want to see Chandler. Some fans want to see Tony. Some fans want to see RDA. Some fans want to see Hooker. He never called out Hooker, but rather he was in a position where there was talk about him fighting Dan Hooker and that fight fell through. And then he said, oh, I'm not fighting Dan Hooker. And then Dan Hooker's a great promoter himself. So he kind of spun that into you know, Hooker versus Islam. So now we have these four names out there. Those are probably the four names I've seen the most. But now we have these names out there where it's like, okay, now we have a fan base divided. So there's not going to be as much pressure on that one fighter to take that fight. Like if Islam only calls out RDA and then he, you know, kind of piles on RDA, 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 you know, that's going to put more pressure on RDA to accept that fight. Now he could, now he could have done the same thing for Chandler. He could have done the same thing for Ferguson or Hooker. But instead, with those all being divided, I feel like that kind of divides the fan base and puts a lot less pressure on each individual fighter to accept that fight. Now they can all sit around and wait and go, okay, who's going to accept this fight? You know, it's not something where there's a lot more pressure on one guy. And I think if Islam is truly having troubles having fighters accept fights, I think pressure from the fan base and pressure from other fighters would be something that would help, you know, have a fighter accept a fight with Islam. But he didn't get that based off, you know, how he kind of divided the fan base amongst four names. So now it's much more unlikely of him to get one of those four guys. And I and I've had a lot of people say that one thing that I have seen, a narrative that I have seen that I kind of disagree with that I want to touch on here because I think it's really interesting is that Islam needs to fight someone ranked ahead of him. I don't think he necessarily needs to do that. And let's see where he is ranked in this division. As of right now, he's ranked at number nine, but that isn't adjusted. The rankings come out on Tuesdays. It's a Monday. So he's going to move up. The question is, does he jump? Well, he's likely going to move up. Um, the first name to jump would be Dan Hooker. Is he going to jump Connor? Is he going to jump two spots to get to Connor? Because that's how many he's got to jump. Is he going to jump a third and jump RDA? Is he going to jump Tony Ferguson? 
and with that being said, these lightweight rankings are really awful already. Conrad at seven, Tony Ferguson at five, Dan Hooker at eight. Does any RDA at six? Does anyone right now think that Tony Ferguson is a better fighter than RDA, McGregor, Hooker, or Islam? I would say no. Um, but with that being said, you know that just kind of show how how bad the rankings are. But I've seen this narrative that Islam Makhlchev is, you know, now that he's in a position where he will be ranked ahead of Dan Hooker most likely, he doesn't need to accept that Dan Hooker fight. And I think that that is a very, very bad call. I think that Dan Hooker versus Islam Makhlchev, just because Hooker declined the fight once, that doesn't mean that now that Islam is ranked ahead of him, he doesn't, you know, take that fight with Hooker now. And it's simply because with Dan Hooker, Dan Hooker is living in Australia, so he's in, or New Zealand, or wherever he lives over there, but he is in a really bad position where he has to quarantine on each side of a travel. So he has to make this, you know, he's got to set a month aside just for travel to get to the U.S. and then to get home to Australia. So for Dan Hooker, fighting, you know, on a moment's notice is not as easy based off the COVID protocols that they have over in that region of the world. So it's very, you know, Dan Hooker couldn't, you know, if the UFC said, hey, Dan Hooker, would you like to fight on August 31st? Dan Hooker would not be able to accept that offer because he's got to quarantine two weeks um, to get there. Quarantine two weeks afterwards. He has to schedule those quarantines for when he returns and when he gets there. And those quarantine opportunities in Australia are very hard to come by. So you have to book a fight further out in advance. So for Islam, you know, Dan Hooker is in a spot where he has a harder time accepting fights than he usually would. There's reason number one. And then even though Dan Hooker, if Islam jumps Dan Hooker, Dan Hooker is going to be ranked number nine in the world. Now, for Islam, a fight with Dan Hooker would be very beneficial based off name value alone. It's not all about rankings. Dan Hooker carries a name value and a respect amongst fans and media and fighters themselves where if you beat Dan Hooker, that's a big name. That would be the best name on your resume. So if you get that opportunity, you should take it. I mean, if you look at what Dan Hooker has done, yes, he got knocked out in his last fight against Michael Chandler. It happened. You know, for 90% of fighters, they're going to get knocked out in their career, whether they're the better fighter or not. It just happens. Sometimes you get caught. You know, sometimes you don't have your best performance. That happened to Dan Hooker, and it happens. But if you look at the fight before that, he's going up against Dustin Poirier, where he wins that fight 40, or he loses that fight, excuse me. He loses that fight 48-47, and he almost finished Poirier in the second round. And you could make the case if that round has another 15 to 30 seconds, he gets that finish. So even though Dan Hooker has lost two in a row, he's no bum and he has a name value that comes along with his name. So for Islam, if he can get anybody, um, right now he's at nine, any of the guys currently ranked eight and up. So any guy, um, Dan Hooker and above, if he can get any of those guys they either come with a number value with their ranking or they come with a name value on their name. You know, any of those guys, those would all be great fights and great opportunities for Islam. And they would be a huge step up in competition. 
I mean, Tiago Moises is a great fighter, as are most of these guys at 155. I'm looking at the rankings. There isn't a bad fighter in these rankings. So, for for um, for Islam, if he can get one of these bigger named guys in the top nine, no matter who it is, you have to take that fight. Now, who do I think that name will be? There are. Here's let's start with this. It's not going to be Poirier. Poirier is going to fight Oliveira. It's not going to be Gaethje, and it's not going to be Dariush. Simply because those two are both represented by Ali Abdelaziz, and rarely do we see Ali's fighters fight. So we're not going to see Gaethje, Dariush, and Islam matched up against one another in really any form. And I know Gaethje fought Habib, and they're both represented by Islam, but that's a very different situation because they were fighting for a title. Usually things like that kind of get set to the side when it's a title fight. So I don't think that we're going to see Gaethje or Dariush. Now this is where it gets interesting because we're, it's almost, it's like, it's a little political because like I just said, we have Ali's fighters. So we have Gaethje, Dariush, and Islam who are all being represented by Ali. Now you have Chandler, Ferguson, and RDA. Now, do we match those three up like You've got the three Ali fighters and three non-Ali fighters. So we try and get Gaethje, Dariush, Islam. Do we try and put those three up against Chandler, Ferguson, and RDA? No matter how you do it, that might be an angle that Ali is looking to take. Because Ali match make, match make, match makes excuse me, and has a lot more say than many other managers. So that would be a possibility. So... The, the way I think this lightweight, you kind of have to matchmake the whole lightweight division to matchmake Islam, in my opinion, simply because of the Ali situation. So I think what we're going to end up seeing is I think we're going to see Gaethje versus Chandler. They're both coming off a loss to the champion, albeit different champions, different times. But usually in a situation like this, you both of you have lost to the champion, a champion, excuse me. Now, you might as well pair them up against one another. And the winner is going to be right back in a title contention. Maybe the winner would get a title fight. Maybe the winner would have to win one more. But it would still be very beneficial for both guys. So I think we're going to see Chandler versus Gaethje. And then uh, we already saw Dariush versus Tony. And I think we're going to see... I think we're going to see a situation where... Tony sits out a while, or we see Tony against a lesser, you know, not as big of a name person. But um, I think someone's going to get left out here. Because looking at these, I would love to make the fight of Tony versus Hooker. And I think that would be a very good angle for the UFC. A lot of people don't want to reward Dan Hooker after two losses in a row. We'll see. But we have RDA at six. Now we're in a situation where you have Dariush, RDA, Islam, and Dan Hooker. Now, I think that they would try and book RDA versus Islam because they did have that call out and because they have booked to fight before and RDA has wanted to fight Habib again and beating Islam, you know, 
albeit you're grasping at straws, but beating Islam would move you closer to a fight against Habib. Like I said, you're you're not really moving far because it's such a long shot. I really don't believe that Habib re- returns at this point. It would be such a long shot. But I think that does move you a little bit closer, and I think that might be something that interests RDA because I think he puts more value in that than many other fighters. And that fight has already been you know, accepted once. So I think we see RDA versus Islam, and then I think we see Benil Daryush get left out this go-around like we saw Justin Gaethje get left out the last go-around of lightweight match- matchmaking because we were not going to make Daryush versus Ferguson again. I don't think they're going to make Daryush versus Dan Hooker. That just doesn't seem plausible based off the rankings. I mean, I'd be fine with that matchup because I think Hooker is that highly skilled, even though he's losing two in a row. I don't think the UFC would be interested in, you know, doing this where you would have the number eight ranked guy go up against the number three ranked guy when you have, you know, Michael Chandler, who Dan Hooker lost to, who, you know, is sitting at four. I just don't see him like that as a realistic lane, but I think it would be an interesting fight. And another way they might try doing this, I know this is going to get a little ranty and a little, you know, we're talking about ifs here. But if they don't match up Gaethje and Chandler, that changes everything. They could do Daryush versus Chandler. I think that is um, also very possible. And I think that is just slightly, you know, slightly less possible. That's why I listed Gaethje versus Chandler first. But I think Daryush versus Chandler is a very interesting matchup, especially if they try and get Gaethje into a title fight directly after the Poirier and Oliveira fight. And if something happens where Poirier decides not to fight for the title, which I think is possible, he might, you know, try and go after a DS fight. He might, you know, maybe he's interested in a Colby fight based off the beef they have. But I don't think that's going to happen, but just in case. And I know Gaethje is looking for a title fight. So, right now, if they do do Darius versus Chandler, that changes a lot of things. And at the top, and then... I think we would actually still see Islam versus RDA, but that kind of leaves different matchups for Dan Hooker and Tony Ferguson. Moving on, on the card, Misha Tate made her return, and she looked tremendous. Now, I'm not saying that as, you know what, she looked tremendous as, if you look at this solely on the performance, if you watch that performance, you'd think Misha Tate looked good, regardless of any outstanding situations. But Misha went in there after a five-year layoff and showed a lot of... She sh- Okay, she showed none of the signs that you would expect from a fighter returning five years later. She didn't look like she was um, slow. She didn't look like she was slower than Marianne. She didn't have cardio issues. She didn't have... You know, sometimes, I think this is what we're seeing with Tony right now, there's just something off, like it's not the same, and you just get this feeling while you're watching the fight that, oh, this isn't going to go great. You know, there was never that feeling with Misha once that fight started going, you know? The chin wasn't gone. She got hit a couple times, and she absorbed those shots. So chin, cardio, composure... The things that you would expect to disappear after five five years off of the sport, they were all there. 
And I think those are all good signs. And I think some of those attributes are even going to increase more as Misha kind of keeps this run going. And it's, she did get a, I don't want to overstate what she did because I was so very impressed, but we have to keep in mind the competition that she was going against. Well, Marianne Renault is a ranked opponent. What, what Misha Tate is trying to do, there's a big gap between Marianne Renault and the top of the division. If you look at Marianne Renault right now, who's number 12 in the world, there is a massive gap between, say, number 12, Marianne Renault, and number 4, Irene Aldana. And then, obviously, Amanda Nunes has, you know, a massive gap between her and any title challenger. So, what she did, she's going to have to do again, and she's going to have to do it against much stiffer competition. Can she do it? I think she's got a chance. I'm not willing to sit here and say she can, but I, or she can do it. I'm not going to say she will do it, but she has that opportunity, and she showed that she has the ability to do that. So, that leaves us in a spot. What is next for Misha Tate? And from what we gathered, we do have to move her up in the rankings and get her up against some more stiffer competition. And in my mind, a lot of people are calling for the Holly Holm rematch. I think we should slow it down on that idea. I just don't think that is the best idea right now. I think you have, when you beat the number 14th ranked, person in the world and this isn't like the lightweight division or it's not like the featherweight division where 14 and 2 are a lot closer in women's MMA a lot more specifically in this 135 division there's a bigger gap in between 2 and 14 and that's just based on the sold number of fighters in the UFC the UFC has less women fighters so the division isn't going to be as deep that's just kind of how it's going to be as long as the UFC puts this amount of effort into female divisions number 14 or number 12 even is going to be a big skill gap in between number 14 and number two that's just the landscape of women's MMA right now so we have to acknowledge that so with that being said having that skill gap Cut, slip that gap right in half, you know. Have her go up against someone. I think personally, the fight that I like is Yana Kutsayaka at number six. She just lost, so it's not like she is someone who is building. She's not building up to a title fight. She just had a slip up. She was building, but now she slips up, and I think that Misha has earned that right to kind of hop some of these names that we're looking in between six and twelve. And I think that Yana isn't a isn't a strong force in this division like someone like Holly Holm would be, where if she can beat Yana Kutsayaka, then we can start talking, okay, you know, now we can talk about Holly Holm. Now we can talk about Jermaine Durand to me if she continues to fight at 135. Now we can talk about Irene Aldana. And then if she gets both those, Say she beats Yana and then beats someone in the top three. Now we're looking at Amanda. And I don't think she wins that fight, but I think she earned the fight to comp- earn the right to compete in that fight. So 
that is the career path that I think we will see for Misha in the near future. And then another person who's going to be on a really interesting career path here is Mantuez Gamrat. He got a Kimura victory over Jeremy Stevens. Very impressed. I've been very impressed with Gamrat the last couple times that I've watched him. And I think that Gamrat is probably going to break into the top 15 here at lightweight. Hopefully. The lightweight rankings are pretty... From 10 to 15, the lightweight rankings are useless. Because basically what's going to happen is those are going to get shuffled based off who is booked to fight. Like we saw Tiago Moises gets ranked after he is booked to fight Islam. We, you know, that's just how it's going to go. Where we're going to see names in and out of there based off who wins, who loses. Like Drew Dober isn't ranked right now at 155. But everyone knows that Drew Dober is a great fighter. So, no matter what happens, there's going to be always be that elite fighter that isn't ranked at 155 and I think right now if Gamrat isn't ranked he's gonna fall right in line with those guys all those great lightweights whose name we do not see in the rankings and I think what is next for Mantuas Gamrat I would like to see him against someone else right in that same vein like a Tiago Moises like in uh like a Armin I can't say his last name, and that frustrates me. Like Armin, like Brad Riddell, you know, maybe someone a little bit further back in the rankings than that. Maybe someone ranked just outside 155 because I don't think Jeremy Stevens is really the most competitive match for Gamrot. Beating Jeremy Stevens didn't really do much for... It just didn't really do much for him. And it's a shame to say. But um, I don't know how else to word that. Where beating Jeremy Stevens doesn't really have a bunch of... He did it in a very impressive fashion. Let me say that. But beating Jeremy Stevens doesn't really push you over the edge, I think, to make a... To get a ranked fight is what I'm trying to say. I just don't think that is going to happen at the moment. And that's really all I can say for that. But so I think we're going to see him fight someone just outside the top 15 at lightweight. And those could be a lot of guys just looking at the names. You know, we did just have Fazeev get booked. Um, you know, maybe Tiago Moises would be the right fight for this, now that I've been thinking about it. Um, I think Tiago Moises would be a right fight because based off who is not booked, Jakar Close maybe would be an interesting one. But I just think he's probably going to need one more before he gets the opportunity to fight a ranked guy. And if Gamrot gets a ranked guy before, that's even better for him. I'm a-okay with that. But I just don't think that's the direction the UFC is going to go at the current moment. Now for Jeremy Stevens, um, I think Jeremy, I think Jeremy's got to get. What does Jeremy need? I I don't know. I but I do think it's getting time where we got to start talking about that retirement word with Jeremy Stevens. He hasn't looked particularly great as of recently, and that is partially due 
just solely off who he has fought. I mean, if you look at the names Jeremy Stevens has fought, I mean, Gamrot, Calvin Cater, I mean, he is not going to get it. Yeah, Rodriguez twice back to back. Jeremy Stevens has just only fought the best of the best. And then when he's not fighting the best of the best, they gave him someone who's a rising prospect who has the potential to be one of the best of the best. So let's give Jeremy Stevens a fight against someone who isn't right there right now. I mean, I think that's got to be at 145 as well. I think 145 is better for, you know what? Give him, just give him Jakar Close. Let's just make that fight. The fight was supposed to happen once. Give him Jakar Close. It was booked for a reason. Let's make that booking again. It'll have a little bit more hype around it. Let's do that now. And then we'll see what happens with that fight before we determine if Jeremy needs to retire or if he is still an elite MMA fighter. And then at middleweight, we had Rodolfo Vieira versus Dustin Stolfskas. Um, a very refreshing performance by Vieira, and I say that because he is improving, and a lot of the issues that we've seen from him are slowly starting to go away. But with that being said, I think it's still a slow rise here, right? We're seeing improvements, we're seeing improvements, but we're not at the point where I'm just blown away. You know, I haven't been blown away of anything I've seen. So continue this small guy, small or large grind of small improvements against more fighters like Dustin, and I think that we've got something that has the potential to be very good on our hands, as long as we don't rush it. Let's just not rush it as of right now. And then, Billy Quarantillo fought Gabriel Benitez and looked very, very, very good. Billy Quarantillo is must-see TV, and he proved it once again, even though he lost to Gavin Tucker. Gavin Tucker is widely considered one of the better guys at 145 to not be ranked right now. He was one of the more hyped prospects before his loss to Dan Ige, but I mean Dan Ige is. They don't call him 50K Ige for nothing. I mean, Dan Ige is a tough guy to go out there and beat, so while I'm not particularly out on Gavin Tucker at the moment, but that just goes to show how good Billy Quarantillo is because he did compete with Gavin Tucker. He didn't get finished, and then he goes in there this fight and really, you know, showed some more improvements and had a great fight. And I think that's the future we're going to see from Billy Quarantillo in the UFC is just having great fights and being a fan favorite. He's a, he seems like a funny guy, very interesting guy. Uh, when Billy Quarantillo is fighting, I'm going to watch. And that is something that I can't say for every single fighter on the UFC roster. Billy Quarantillo is must-see TV. And then we had Danielle Rodriguez. Daniel. I don't know why I said Danielle. Daniel Rodriguez versus Preston Parsons. Daniel Rodriguez went out there and won via KL. Very good performance. He just kind of did what Daniel Rodriguez does. And he goes out there and he hits you without getting hit and throws straight punches and goes out there and gets a win. I really like that performance by Daniel Rodriguez. That's what a lot of people were expecting. A lot of people thought he was going to win via KO. So to those people, good job. Another person who won via KO, Amanda Limos. And she is scary. She has crazy power for that women's strawweight division. Now, 
that's really all there is to say about Lemos's performance. I mean, she went out there, she landed early, and those shots, you know, dropped her opponent, and, you know, that was it. And a lot of people were talking about the stoppage. I think it was a good stoppage, and the reason I'm saying that is because if you look at the stoppage up until, you know, when Ruiz stood back up, what we saw was something that needed to be stopped, and then the fight gets stopped, and she hops back up, and she's in her fighting stance, and it's like, oh, great, one of these. Lemos hit her, wobbles her, hits her again. Now she's falling, and as she's falling, Lemos hits her once more as she's getting ready to face plant off, as Ruiz is getting ready to face plant off the ground. She eats another shot, and then, you know, Lemos is going in for hammer fist and ground and pound, and, you know, at that point, you just got to get the fighter out of there. And I think we kind of saw how disoriented Ruiz was because when she stood back up, she stays, in, she stays in the fighting stance. You know, she's got the ref in front of her who had just stopped the fight. Usually, we see fighters protest the stoppage, but she didn't. She just stood in the fighting stance. And it's like, it was very weird, but I think that weirdness comes from disorientation based off the shot she took. So I think it was a good stoppage. And those are all the fights I'm going to talk about from UFC Fight Night, Makhlchev versus Moises. Now we are going to move in to some news. The very first and largest piece of news that we have seen, everything else that we're going to talk about is kind of we saw coming. This is something that I want to talk about, and it's Conor McGregor and his stress fractures that he said he had. And let's be honest here. This seems like a very plausible excuse to me, and I know Conor has tried to make excuses in the past, but this seems realistic because that would explain why the bones in his leg broke so easily in that fight. I don't think there was anything in that fight that makes you stand out and go, oh, that did it, you know? And I think that comes from the fact that if he had a stress fracture coming in, you know, it's obviously going to break easier and the only thing about that is why was he kicking so much and he might have just said hey I'm gonna go out there and I'm going to kick because that is my path to victory I think Conor saw a path to victory and said I have I absolutely have to do that regardless of any other circumstances coming in and I think that you know that was his downfall a little bit of stubbornness and let me say this I am the number one proponent of if you are not fit to compete, you know, don't compete. And there's a difference between being hurt and injured. If you have have stress fractures in your leg and you're going to compete in MMA, you that's not something you should do. You know, pull out of the fight. It's a and a lot of people like to talk trash about people who pull out of fights, but it's the nature of the fight game. I mean, if Connor goes in there and and gets those and gets those stress heals those stress fractures now we don't have we're not in this situation where all the bad things that happened in the third fight none of those occur we don't need to see fighters breaking shins because they wanted to fight with a stress fracture and then we don't see connor you know on the ground yelling into the mic saying things that a lot of people didn't like we don't see any of that if connor pulls out and if connor says all those happened because of these stress fractures, which is plausible. I mean, can we just not fight injured? It is something that Max Holloway did, where he pulled out of his fight when he was injured. 
TJ Dillashaw pulled out of the first time the fight was signed with Corey Sandhagen because his eye got cut. And there's no reason to fight if your eye is cut and you have to worry about the cut breaking open with one punch landing on it. Because if that cut breaks open and then the fight has to be stopped via a doctor stoppage because the cut is too bad, now we're in a worse situation than when we started. And then if fighters pull out of fights, we don't have to worry about we don't have to worry about, you know, a fighter losing and then having excuses. You know, a lot of times fighters lose and then we this is what's going on with counter right now. Now we're debating is this a real excuse, a fake excuse? Even if it is an excuse, do we care? All that gets thrown out the window if we just pull out of fights when we're injured. And I'm not saying pull out of fights when you're hurt because you're going to be hurt. It's fighting. You know, sometimes if your shoulder aches, you just kind of have to deal with it. But if you have a torn labrum in your shoulder, pull out of the fight. You know, it's just something that I think is. And let me say this. Connor was in a very bad position because if Connor wanted to pull out of the fight, what happens to UFC 264? UFC 264 is toast. Wonder Boy and Gilbert Burns aren't gonna headline a paper aren't gonna headline a pay-per-view when all you have when that's all they have, you know? That's not gonna it's just not realistic for that to headline a pay-per-view. And that just goes along with a bigger discussion of hey, we need to make these pay-per-views better to where if a fight drops off because of an injury, we're okay. If it drops off because of COVID, we're okay. If a fight, and you know, if nothing drops off, then we have a great card we're looking at. For example, if something happens that Usman and Gilbert Burns, or excuse me, Gilbert and, ugh, Restart that whole sentence. If something happens that either Usman or Masvidal gets hurt and they can't find a late late replacement for one of them, then what we do is we have two other title fights on the card and we're fine. We're okay. You know? That's what happened when Volkanovski and Ortega had to get canceled because of COVID. We had two other title fights. We were good. You know? But now when you design a thin pay-per-view to begin with, then we're in a position where you have to worry about canceling that pay-per-view. And then if you make the pay-per-view deeper, you're just going to get more buys. And so it helps everything. So I think if we just stack these pay-per-views, stack fight nights, get better fights on cards, and then, you know, if something happens where if we're injured, pull out. Pull out. Don't fight injured. It's not helping anybody. You're hurting yourself when you fight injured. And that's just something that I wanted to throw in there because I think that is something that is uh, very important and it's something that hurts the UFC. And then we had three fights. Yes, three fights that were officially announced. And they all are for UFC 266 on September 25th. We're going to start at the top of the card with the first one being Brian Ortega versus Alex Volkanovsky for the 145-pound belt will take place on that card, UFC 266. It will be the main event, and that is official. Not much more to say there. We'll preview the fight when the fight comes around. Valentina Shevchenko versus Lauren Murphy, UFC 266, September 25th for the female 125 belt. Not much more to say for either of those. 
We knew these were the fights that were going to happen. We knew Lauren Murphy was going to be the contender. We knew Brian Ortega was going to be the contender. They've got the ultimate fighter. They were already signed to fight once. We knew these fights were coming. And then the other fight that is going to be a five-round, not even a co-main. I, I mean, it's not a co-main. It's not anything. Well, this is something special. Five rounds is going to be the third fight down. The pre-co-main is what we'll call it is going to be Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler. That fight is signed, and it is official that it is five rounds, and I'm not going to talk much more about that because I will, everyone is pretty much expecting this to be five rounds. They did it for Nate. You'll do it for Nick. And we already talked about my opinion on the booking between Nick and Robbie. We already talked about that, so if you want, you can go back to listen to that. Um, but now it is official. And then... The only other piece of fight news that we have is Shamil Abudakahimov and Chris Dauskas. They got postponed. They got pushed back a week from July 24th to July 31st. And um, I think the only reason they did that, there might have been something that happened, but it never, it didn't say, the report I read didn't say why. But um, this is likely just because we had a fight fall off on Hall versus Strickland. And then these two were going to be on the prelims. They'll probably be on the main card since we push them back a week. Because that July 31st card is looking a lot weaker. And this July 24th card is going to be very strong for fight nights. So you might as well move a fight a week back. And you know kind of balance these cards out a little bit. Um, July 24th is obviously still a mile better. But pushing you know. Dowskis and Shamil back a week really helps that July 31st card. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do it in, with another one of these prelims, prelim fights where you can move it back a week, take it off the prelims, and put it on the main card. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. And now we're going to talk about that stacked July 24th card, headlined by Corey Sandhagen and TJ Dillashaw. This is the fight that I have been waiting for. I said the UFC should book this fight when after Corey Sandhagen beat Marlon Moraes. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. Instead, they gave Corey Sandhagen to Frankie Edgar. And Corey Sandhagen brutally knocked him out. And then they did book this fight, but it got pushed back because TJ Dillashaw had a cut on his eyebrow. And as I said earlier, that's okay. It's fine. Because we don't need to see TJ Dillashaw go in there with a cut on his eyebrow, then have Corey Sandhagen elbow him once on the same exact cut that he already had, have said cut burst open, and then, you know, be in a position where we get a doctor stoppage. So, we're getting Corey Sandhagen versus TJ Dillashaw, fight of the year contender, because this is going to be great. The return of TJ Dillashaw against Corey Sandhagen. And my pick for this one, as of right now, because I am going to watch some more tape and I'm going to do some more research, but as of right now, I've got Corey Sandhagen. The reason I have Corey Sandhagen is because I love his striking. I love the way he utilizes... I feel like when Corey Sandhagen is striking, he utilizes the best attack at all times. When he's far away kicks, punches, and he starts, or he kicks, jabs, uses range. He's long enough to use range. He uses range well. 
And when he gets inside, he mixes it up very well with hooks, with elbows, with knees. He can really he's Corey Sandhagen's is a great example of someone who can strike with all eight limbs. And Corey Sandhagen also mixes it up to the body very well. I love watching Sandhagen, you know, be in a position where he lands a couple good shots to the head. He'll mix up to the body and you know, he'll throw some knees in there when you're ducking down to cover the body. You've got a knee coming up to hit you in the head. He is a very hard guy to beat, and he's on point in terms of his striking. And as he showed in his last two fights, he has knockout power in the sense where he can land a shot that will put you away. You know, that knee that he landed on Frankie Edgar puts a horse down. That spinning heel kick that he lands on Marlon Moraes, he didn't really even land that clean. He landed that more on the head. It, st- it stuns Marlon because it's a spinning heel kick. So if you get hit at all, it's going to hurt. And then he is able to finish the fight after that. So Corey Sanhagen, the only problem is there's a clear game plan to beat Corey Sanhagen, and that's through offensive grappling. And that is something that I think TJ Dillashaw could be able to do. I think TJ Dillashaw could be able to go in there and out-wrestle Corey Sandhagen four or five rounds. But I don't think that's the approach we're going to see. TJ Dillashaw is obviously a great fighter. And my only thing that I don't like about this fight is that it's not on a pay-per-view. This would have been a tremendous fight to have on a pay-per-view with fans have it be a five round one i mean this is one of those fights where it could be a five round fight uh on a pay-per-view this is one of those fights but it's on a fight night card and this is going to be my probably my favorite fight night card of the year because you've heard me talk about how much i love this fight so Corey Sanhagen versus TJ Dillashaw. I lean Corey Sanhagen, and I think if Corey Sanhagen can get it done, I think he gets it done by knockout. And if TJ Dillashaw gets it done, he gets it done by decision. But right now, I'm leaning Corey Sanhagen via knockout. I think he adds another spectacular knockout to his highlight reel, and then he fights for the belt after Sterling and Jan get their business sorted. And then in the co-main, we have Aspen Ladd returning to fight Macy Chisson. Now, this is a fight where Chia-san looks very good in her last fight, if I remember correctly. I'm pretty sure she did. Espen Ladd was one of the top prospects in the UFC for female MMA. So, I'm very interested in this fight. And I lean Espen Ladd. I lean Espen Ladd winning this fight. But I'm not overly confident here. I just think that Aspen Ladd at this point is probably the little bit of a better fighter. And I don't think there really is much else to be said. I think Aspen Ladd has fought much stiffer competition. And I think she's got an experience advantage fighting at the highest level. She, They might have similar number of fights. But I just think that the experience is what is going to help Aspen experience at the highest level is going to help Aspen Ladd and I think she's going to be able to go out there and get the win because of that and then going down one more fight on the card we have Kyler Phillips versus Rolian Pavia now 
Kyler Phillips. I'm very surprised the UFC doesn't have him fighting a ranked opponent at the moment. And I really like Kyler Phillips. His last fight against Song Yudong was tremendous. And I think he goes out there, wins via knockout, and just, you know, shows that you got to put him in there with ranked guys. I think that's the type of fight we see from Kyler Phillips next. And I am excited for that fight. Moving on, we have... You know, we're not actually we're not going to talk about all these fights, but we do have Macy Barber returning against Miranda Maverick. Um, I'm leaning Miranda Maverick just because she's looked better in her last couple fights, and I think Macy Barber has been through a lot injury-wise. So I've got Miranda Maverick, but that's not to say that Macy Barber can't get it done. Another fight I really like: Paul Haje Soriano versus Brendan Allen. Very, very impressed with Soriano's last performance against Dusko Todorovic. So that's why I'm picking his Soriano in this fight. I really like Dusko, and he beat Dusko pretty handedly. And I, I, when I say I like Dusko, not as, as a fan, but just X's nose, I thought he was a really, really, really good prospect. But Soriano went out there and, you know, won that fight very handedly. So I'm going to pick him in this fight based off the performance I saw in the last one. And then we've got Ian Heinich. Versus Nazodurin Imovov. So I've got Heinich in this one. Same reason I've got Aspen Ladd. I think he's got more experience against great fighters. And he didn't look bad against Kevin Gastelum in his last fight. And I think if you can go in there and do some good work on Gastelum, I think he can get this win. And then another fight that is very, very hyped up. If you're active on Twitter... You know what fight I'm going to talk about. It's Adrian Yanez versus Randy Costa. These two have found a way to perfectly market themselves as young prospects in the bantamweight division. And they are both just ridiculously good. And they have found a way for friendly Twitter beef. You know, it's like two friends bantering back and forth. They got their date. They've got their fans. And I've got Adrian Yanez because I really liked his boxing that he showed in his last fight. And I think if he can go out there and do that again, I think he puts away Randy Costa. And whoever wins this fight, if Costa wins this fight, if Yanez wins this fight, I think they've got a really bright future at bantamweight because they are both very, very skilled. And that's the last thing I've got for this episode. And make sure you come back next week so you can listen to me talk about Corey Sanhagen versus TJ Dillashaw. You know, what happened after the fight? What are, What's happening next in that bantamweight division? A very interesting division. And we're going to talk about the fight card that's coming after that, which is Hall, Uriah Hall versus Sean Strickland. There's some other not bad fights on there. We'll talk about that. And if there's any other news or fight announcements that need to be addressed on the, on the podcast, we will talk about those next week. But most importantly... Corey Sandhagen versus TJ Dillashaw. Make sure you watch that fight. It's going to be important. And make sure when you're done watching that fight, you come back and listen to me give my opinion on that fight. So, like always, thank you for watching to the 36th episode of the Headkick KO Podcast. Make sure you tune in next week for another one.